With that aside, uh, our Bible text this morning is found in Colossians 1, 21 to 23. It's the same book Ted read from earlier, earlier this morning. And while um, Ted, uh, well, the passage he read dealt with the outworking of the Christian life, we're going to discuss the foundation or the genesis of it. We'll find that Paul is, uh, wrote the book to the church in Colossae, as you probably figured, and um, we know that it was pastored by a faithful minister named Epaphras. So throughout the book, Paul is writing to make it clear to them the, that they, to make clear the plan of salvation so that they can reach full assurance of understanding and knowledge of God. And he does this so that no one can delude them with false teachings. Before we read the text this morning, I'd like for you to consider how you would describe your relationship with God. No doubt you came here largely because of it. Some of you have been faithful Christians for a long time, and it's a natural part of your routine to gather with believers for the preaching of the word, for singing the songs, for encouragement and fellowship. But maybe you're here because you don't really know much about God, but you're curious about your relationship with him, and you figure being in church on a Sunday morning is probably a good place to cure that. Maybe you're not even curious, but you came to be polite to a friend or family member because you know that God, whoever he is, means a lot to them. Or maybe you came here this morning because you want to be a better person and good people go to church and seem to be happy. Or maybe you're just bewildered with life and its struggles and you're looking to make sense of it all. You're trying to find peace and everything else so far has left you anxious and unsatisfied, so you thought you'd give the Christian faith a try and see what it has to offer. But whatever your motivation for coming here today, and however you would describe your relationship with God, I suggest that the more important question is, how does God describe his relationship with you? We find the answer to that question in this morning's passage in Colossians 1, 21 through 23. If you would turn there with morning, uh, this morning. We'll read that in a second. We'll find that you fall into one of two groups of people, either with those separated, or as our passage will will say, alienated from God, or those who were once part of the first group but are now reconciled to him. We'll see that Christ is the hope for the former and the security for the latter. That is, he offers sure reconciliation to those estranged from him. We'll consider from the text the parties to the reconciliation, the price and purpose of reconciliation with God, the promise of reconciliation with God, and the proclamation of reconciliation with God. Let's read Colossians 1, 21 to 23 together. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Before we look at the passage this morning, let's go to Lord in prayer. Lord, as we study your word this morning, we ask that you would make your message clear to us, 
Open our hearts to receive your truth. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, first we'll look at the parties in need of reconciliation. Paul begins this passage by identifying those individuals, and as you probably know intuitively, or maybe from the introduction, that generally the parties involved are mankind and God, and more personally, you and God. Look at verse 21. You'll see where that's identified. And you who were once alienated. Paul, of course, is writing to the church in Colossae, so he says that they were once alienated to refer to their relationship with God before their conversion or their reconciliation with him. It's not as if the citizens of Colossae were any more wicked than average. Their prior state of alienation from God is the natural state of humanity. In a similar passage um, in Ephesians 2, also written by Paul, he describes the former state of the Ephesian Christians by equating them with the rest of mankind. In other words, this alienation from God is a universal problem. And what a problem it is. It's no fun to be estranged from a family member, a friend, or a coworker. but a brief look at the description of Christ in the preceding paragraph will surely convince you that being alienated from him is indeed quite a predicament. Look at, the, um, look at 15 through 20. These verses are believed to be an early church hymn concerning the greatness and supremacy of Christ. It's like the predecessor to our modern hymn we love, In Christ Alone. Let's read it together. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. While we don't have time this morning to elaborate on every characteristic of Christ in this passage, let's note the highlights. Um, particularly, keep in mind that these are the highlights of the one mankind is alienated from. Look at verse 15. Christ is the image of God. He and the Father are one. To see Christ is to see the Father. As God, Christ existed before and is superior to all things. Verse 16, Christ is the creator of the universe, including everything both in the physical and the spiritual realms. Because of that, verse 17, Christ is before all things. That is, he has authority over everything, and he sustains and is sovereign over his creation. Verse 18, Christ is the head of the church, the firstborn from the dead. That, that is, he is the first to experience the resurrection to eternal life promised to the church, and by conquering the grave, he is preeminent or supreme over everything. Finally, verse 19, Christ is the fullness of God. That is, all that can be experienced of God is found in Christ. Nothing can properly be added to him. What a profile of the person we're alienated from. If you haven't found peace in this life, I suggest it may be because you're alienated from the one who created this life. But how or why are we alienated? Look at verse 21. 
And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. We're alienated from God because our minds are hostile towards him. We sang about this morning, this morning uh, speak, O Lord, and renew our minds. It's because they're initially hostile to him. That is, we don't want to be subject to his sovereignty and his supremacy. We don't want to follow his rules. And as the text indicates, that's why we do evil deeds. In Ephesians 2, Paul describes alienated people as walking in sin, following the course of this world, following the prince of the powers of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the son's disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. Mankind is alienated by God simply by following their own passions and the desires of their mind and their bodies. It's not necessarily a conscious enmity towards God. It's also simply the idolatry of serving ourselves rather than serving Christ. And that's why Paul equates following evil spirits in Ephesians 2 with following our own passions and desires. And this sin separates us from God. Isaiah 59, 1-2 says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save, or his ear dull, that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Those hostile to God are not only alienated from him, but they are also subject to his just wrath if they face him in judgment without first reconciling with him. Look at verse 16. It stated that all things were created through him and for him. Those living for themselves rather than Christ are in rebellion against him. Romans 2.8 says, For all those who are self-seeking rather uh, self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Does this affect your answer to our question this morning? How does this affect Knowing this, how does this affect your relationship with God? Our sin separates us from God and entitles us to judgment. Have you been reconciling to him, or would you face and receive his wrath and fury if you stood before God in judgment today? The good news is that there's hope in Jesus Christ because he paid the price to accomplish reconciliation between God and man. We see the price and purpose of reconciliation in verse 22 says the lead up to it, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. First, notice that Christ is the one who initiates this reconciliation. We don't search after God. He comes for us. Back in Ephesians 2, we, uh, 4 to 5, Paul after describing our spiritually dead state, says, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love he has for us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. He is the one who initiates our reconciliation with him. We were spiritually dead and hostile to him when he accomplished all that was necessary for our reconciliation with him. Paul in Romans describes it as as this, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, he died. But Christ not only initiates the reconciliation, he also paid its price. 
Look at verse 22 again. He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. He doesn't just sweep our sins under the rug and pretend that they didn't happen. He doesn't just cancel the penalty and remove the debt. He paid its price through his death on the cross. That, uh, the part of the hymn we read in verse 20 says that Christ reconciles the world to himself by the blood of the cross. 1 Peter 2, 24 to 25 states it this way. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. In Colossians 2, immediately following our text, Paul explains the price of reconciliation in verses 13 and 14. Maybe glance over there if you will. You'll see, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. The third verse of the hymn we love, It Is Well, comes from these verses. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. So Christ paid the price of, uh, necessary for reconciliation, but he reveals the purpose of reconciliation at the end of verse 22. It says, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Paul is picturing the last judgment when man must give account for every action. In Matthew 12, Jesus says, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. Which one of us wants to face that level of scrutiny when we have a mind that is hostile to him and we do evil deeds. Christ paid the price of our sins so that, in fact, we can be the opposite of hostile and evil. That is, holy and blameless and above reproach before him, having our sin paid for by his death on the cross. The wrath and fury that we deserved were born by him. As we sang this morning, we, we, he died to pay our sins so that we can stand before him full arrayed in blood-washed linens. Christ paid the price necessary for our reconciliation to make it possible, and his purpose was that so we can stand before him holy and blameless and above reproach. But as Jonathan Edwards said, you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. So if we contribute nothing to the process of reconciliation, we must then ask the question, to whom is the promise of reconciliation offered? It's not a universally applied reconciliation. Otherwise, Paul would have nothing to warn people of in verse 28. Universal reconciliation is a, a heresy that the church has been fighting almost since its inception. And it's contradictory to our text today. But maybe you generally accept that Christ died for sinners, but what have you done with that information? How do we know if our debt has been canceled? How do you know if you'll stand holy and blameless and above reproach before him? Verse 23 answers that question. It says, you will be presented holy and blameless and above reproach if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. The reconciliation described in this passage is offered to everyone who has faith in the hope of the gospel, which literally means good news. 
Faith in the gospel is a firm reliance on the sufficiency and efficacy of Christ's satisfaction of our debt through his blood shed on the cross and his conquering of death through his resurrection. We don't obtain or we don't achieve reconciliation with God by works or good conduct. We obtain reconciliation with God through faith. I like to picture faith as a mechanism by which we, we grasp onto the promises of God and hold them secure. Ephesians 2 tells us that while we are saved by grace through faith, but other that we were saved by grace through faith, or put another way, God shows us unmerited favor by saving those who put their trust in his promise of reconciliation rather than their own conduct. In Paul's letter to Titus, he says this in chapters 3, 4 to 5. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. And this is why our faith can be stable and steadfast, as our passage says. If our salvation or reconciliation with God depended on our own merit, we'd be in trouble. Which one of us goes a day without dishonoring Christ in some way? Would you ever have peace knowing that you'd done enough to merit forgiveness? How would you know whether a particular sin had been paid for? How would you ever find rest? How would you know whether God could consider you a good person and worthy of entry into heaven? I received an unusual text from a friend uh, a week or two ago at this point. Uh, he's an unbelieving friend. I was a bit confused uh, when I swiped down from the top of my phone to read the preview of the text. It said, Google says you're wasting time being a good person. I was uh, initially a little confused, so I clicked on the attached image, and it, it pulled up a Google search bar with an um, automated, probably some sort of AI-recommended answer to the question. And the question was, can we go to heaven with tattoos? Initially, I was confused, since I don't have any tattoos, but I kept reading the automated uh, answer to find out why my friend sent this to me. And uh, it read, bad theology, but it said, people with tattoos will not go to heaven. People who drink alcohol will not go to heaven. People who eat too much pork will not go to heaven. I've done that at my pastor's house from time to time. So <laughs> I kind of expected the poor theology from Google, but at this point I was still confused, so I kept reading, and finally it struck me. The last thing it said was, short people will not go to heaven. <laughs> so, yeah, don't worry, Patrick. My friend's obvious joke aside, I found it interesting and perhaps sad for my own testimony that he who, I'm, who I pray for every night still thinks that my hope for heaven rests in my attempts to be a good person, whatever that means. His wife works with me, so they both know I'm a flawed individual, as does my law partner, as does Kyle and Brendan and Kristen and Evan and, and did I leave anyone else? I'm sorry. Sydney, Sydney. Sorry, you're brand new. She sits right through my window with the shades closed. Anyway, um, as the song says, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and his righteousness. The middle of verse 23, Paul warns of the temptation to shift from a hope through faith in Christ. Paul addresses this danger in the following chapter. Look at chapter 2, verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Paul's fear is that his readers may question the sufficiency of Christ's work. 
and add man-made rules and regulations that distract them from a stable and steadfast hope in Christ. This is the problem with some who call themselves Christians today. They find a sense of pride and accomplishment in their exercise of religious rituals and good deeds. They claim to like Christ and his teaching, but they have a sense of self-worth due to pious behavior. They think, even subconsciously, that God is lucky to have them on their side, and they believe that God views them as superior over others in their own right. Jesus addressed this attitude in Luke chapter 18. In verse 9 through 14, um, Jesus tells this parable. We would read, He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who humbles himself will be exalted, but everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. Christ doesn't reconcile the religious to himself. He reconciles humble sinners who have faith in him. Paul, in Ephesians 2, says, By grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one may boast. In other words, Christ gets all the glory for our salvation because we contribute nothing to it except the sin that makes it necessary. We merely obtain reconciliation by faith in Christ. This promise of reconciliation, then, is made to all those who humbly put their faith and trust in Christ alone. And this hope for humanity is worthy of proclamation. The same gospel that was preached by Epaphras to the Colossians must be proclaimed in all the world. Look at the end of verse 23. It says, The gospel that you heard has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. The gospel wasn't magically revealed to the Colossians. It was a message that they heard from Epaphras and others. This is a message worthy of sharing. The phrase, in all of creation, is an exaggeration to emphasize the universal applicability of the gospel's message of reconciliation. It's indeed good news that no matter what a person has done, they're never far from the grace of God, since what they've done does not determine whether they're a recipient of God's forgiveness. It's about what Christ has done for those who put their faith and trust in him. Because of this, there's no person that the gospel is impotent to save. This is why Paul became a minister of the gospel. I know some of you may have may suspect that I purposefully selected this passage about Paul becoming a minister to, to subconsciously affect your vote next week. <laughs> Lawyers are sneaky people after all. <laughs> However, minister in this passage has the idea of servant rather than pastor. What Paul is saying is that he dedicated his life and ultimately gave his life for the proclamation of the reconciliation available through Christ. 
This is a familiar theme in his epistles. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, um, we, uh, Paul describes this ministry in verses 17 through 21. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God is, was reconciling the world to himself, not counting our trespasses against, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For, he, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. At the end of Colossians, in verse 28, in Colossians 1, that is, verse 28, Paul says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. The proclamation of this message should come from a heart of humble compassion for those who are as we once were. In 1 Timothy 1, 13 to 17, Paul gives his own testimony and acknowledged, formerly, I was a persecutor, a blasphemer, blasphemer, an insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. And he concludes this passage with a, a verse similar to the hymn we read from Colossians 1. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Our proclamation of the message of reconciliation will be tainted if it comes from anything other than an attitude of amazement that Christ would save someone like us. Rosalie and I have attempted to uh, witness to a, a family we're casual friends with, and uh, while at a, a party at their house, we met an older gentleman who um, identified as a Christian and uh, found out we went to church, and so he kind of started uh, talking to us and telling us about what he did. I asked him where he goes to church, and he said he didn't because there are too many bad people in churches, and he couldn't find a good one. Um, I don't know if he realized what he was saying about mine, um, but uh, he started talking about his family, and he just oozed disdain for everyone in his family that didn't love Christ, that wasn't a Christian as well. And we, went, we walked away realizing like that's what we're up against with his family. That is their view of a Christian. That's someone who doesn't see themselves as Paul saw himself, formerly a blasphemer, a prosecutor, or a person, a prosecutor. I'm a defense attorney, so maybe a prosecutor. <laughs> and an insolent opponent. <laughs> but that attitude is not what we see exemplified in the life of Paul. And it's not an attitude of someone who has experienced grace so amazing that it would save a wretch like them. The mission of the gospel 
For the mission of the reconciled is to proclaim Christ's offer of reconciliation and hope for eternal life, warning everyone of the consequences if his offer is refused. So stated in our introduction, we all fall into one of two groups. Either we are alienated from Christ or we've been alienated from Christ, but now we are reconciled to him. If you are if you are in a position, if you are reconciled to him, you're in a position to proclaim this message of reconciliation to those who need to be warned by it. If you have obtained reconciliation with Christ by placing your faith in his finished work on the cross, then our text says to continue in it. In it. Be stable and steadfast, knowing that your position does not hinge upon what you do, but because of what Christ did on the cross. Commit to proclaiming this hope of the gospel, this ministry of reconciliation to those still alienated from God as you once were. And if you have never been reconciled to God, if you've never seen yourself as a sinner who will one day stand in judgment before the creator of the universe, then receive by faith God's promise of reconciliation through Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. Else face the wrath and fury of God for your rebellion against him. Christ bore it so you don't have to. Perhaps the promise of reconciliation is, is best summarized by the most famous verses of the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. I implore you, as an ambassador of Christ, be reconciled to him today. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for providing a way to reconcile us to you, the sovereign over all creation. We thank you for paying for our sins on the cross so that we might stand holy and blameless and above reproach before you someday. Help us to rest in your promises and proclaim this hope to, a world, to the lost world. For those of us here who are still alienated from you, I pray that today they will place their faith and trust in you alone. For whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.